At this time, we're going to continue our worship with our first scripture reading, coming from Exodus 4, 1 through 9. Then Moses answered, But suppose they do not believe me or listen to me, but say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw the staff on the ground, and it became a snake. And Moses drew back from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Reach out your hand and seize it by the tail. So he reached out his hand and grasped it, and it became a staff in his hand, so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was leprous, as white as snow. Then God said, Put your hand back into your cloak. So he put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his body. If they will not believe you or heed the first sign, then may believe, they may believe the second sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or heed you, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our second scripture reading today comes from Exodus 4, 10 to 16. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who gives you speech? Who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them deaf or mute, seeing the blind? deaf or seeing or blind. Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, What of your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know, you can, I know that he can speak fluently. Even now he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, his heart will be glad. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be in your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you what you shall do. He indeed shall speak for you to the people. He shall serve as a mouth for you, and you shall serve as God for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can try now? All right. Audio's being a little testy today. I've never actually been so happy to be in the sun. Usually I'm like a vampire trying to get rid of it. But today, I'm actually thankful that there's a little bit of sun on me. So uh, I want to welcome you all here. Again, thank you for coming out. I know it's a cold day, but I really appreciate that you all are here. We've actually had a pretty good run of Sundays. So knock on wood, they'll keep on going this way. 
We've been doing a sermon series called Exodus, Discovering Our Promised Land. And the concept of this series, the reason why we're studying the book of Exodus is because it speaks beautifully to the circumstances in which we find ourselves right now. The stories in the book of Exodus, they help us talk about how we are connected as individuals, as a community, and as a church together. And our goal is to really talk about how we need to be taking a bold new direction as Christians if we're going to discover our promised land and remain relevant in the 21st century. So today I actually want to begin with a poem, a poem from Robert Frost. It's his most famous poem. It's The Road Not Taken. And you're going to hear it on the, you'll hear it out loud, even if you can't see it out there on the screen. Um, but you're going to hear uh, Adam, he's the one who is narrating it. And the words are up there on the screen. And I just want you to listen to this because it's going to set the tone for what we're going to be talking about today. So let's listen. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, Though as for that the passing there had worn them really about the same, and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. All right, we're going to come back to that a little later on in the sermon. It actually plays a big role in what we're going to be talking about today. But for now, I want to go back and talk about what we discussed last week so that we understand kind of what we're dealing with this week. So last week, we talked about Moses. He ends up fleeing from Egypt. He goes to the land of Midian. There he meets uh, the daughters of the priests of Midian. He marries one of them, and he takes over all of the herding responsibilities for the flock. He's out in the middle of nowhere in a barren wasteland, and he sees this bush light on fire, and an angel of the Lord comes out of that bush and says to Moses, God has a job for you. I need you to go and speak to Pharaoh and tell him to release the Hebrew slaves. And if you remember, what happens is uh, Moses says, well, if I go to them, who do I say that you are? What's your name? And God says, well, tell them I am sent you, which is kind of strange, right? But I explained to you that it's actually quite a profound idea, this idea that God is all of existence. Today, we continue on with that. This is the second half of that conversation. And the way that it begins, if you were kind of hearing what TC was talking about, is that uh, Moses is not too thrilled with this assignment. It's not something that he particularly wants to do. And so he starts bringing up all of these issues with this particular plan. And the first issue that he runs into is he says to God, well, look, if I go to the Hebrew people, why do you think they're even going to believe that you sent me to them? Like, just because I say God sent me, that's not an automatic win, right? And you all know that that's true, right? 
You all go, how long have you, how often have you gone into Chicago and you see the dude preaching on the corner, right? And he's saying, God sent me to talk to you. Do you follow that dude? No, you do not. You go across the street in the other direction. So the fact is, just because somebody says that you should follow God because they were sent by God doesn't mean you're going to do it. So God says, okay, I see your point. I'm going to give you some firepower. So God gives Moses the ability to perform signs, miraculous signs. So the first sign is that he can take his staff and turn it into a snake. The second sign is that he can take his hand, put it inside his cloak, take it out. It'll be leprous. Then he puts it back in again, and then it becomes well again. That's a cool trick, right? And then the third one is he can take the water from the Nile and turn it into blood. Now, what's important for us to remember and to understand in all of this is that in the ancient world, if you had the ability to perform actions that were unexplainable, there were two possible sources for you to be able to do this. So the first source is that you were a practitioner of magic. That's the first possible way that you could do it. Now, today, we know that magic is sleight of hand, and we know that it's misdirection. But in the ancient world, they believed that magic was real. They believed that you could actually do those things. So like Harry Potter, you know Harry Potter? He goes to Hogwarts, he studies spells, he studies how to make potions. You could do that in the ancient world. You could study under witches and sorcerers. Now, of course, the whole thing is, is that they were using chemistry and it was sleight of hand, but that's how they did it. The second way that you were able to perform these signs in the ancient world is if a god gave you that ability, imbued you with special powers. Now, in this instance, you personally are not actually able to do the thing. God is using you as a conduit. God's working through you so that you can perform all of these actions. Now, these two sources, they were often in conflict with one another. And they were actually in competition with one another. And you can see this competition, actually, if we fast forward to Exodus chapter 7. And that's where Moses' brother Aaron goes head-to-head with some of Pharaoh's sorcerers. So Aaron's brother turns the staff into a snake. And then it goes, he goes up against the other guys. So this is what he says. He says, Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. So they were able to turn a staff into a snake as well. The whole point being that these signs, these miraculous signs, were like a calling card. That when you were able to do them, when you had the ability to do these things, that it was a sign that you were connected to God. So you either could do it by magic or you could do it by God. And by doing this, the Hebrew people say, wow, he's really connected to God. And the greater the signs were, the more you were connected to God. And as we know later on, Moses does some pretty amazing signs in the book of Exodus. And so this is how he would have got the Hebrew people to follow him. This is very common in the ancient world. Priests, they would perform these signs and people would follow them everywhere. And this is exactly what, of course, Jesus does in the New Testament, right? What does Jesus do? Perform signs, people follow him. You with me so far? Yeah? Nod a little bit? You with me? A little bit? Okay. All right. So... Even though Moses is now able to perform these signs, the fact is, is he still doesn't really want to go and do this. He doesn't want to go to Pharaoh. And so he presents another barrier to entry, which is that he says, I can't really speak very well. He brings up his speech, and he actually says to God, specifically in this instance, Oh my Lord, I have never been eloquent, but I am slow of speech 
and slow of tongue. Now, you may be aware that some scholars have speculated that Moses may have been a stutterer. And I have been friends with many stutterers in my life, and I can tell you that if this hypothesis is true, he was probably terrified of speaking in public. And I'll give you an example of this. I was uh, friends with a guy named Andy back at seminary, and he had a stutter. And as much as he felt called to be in the church, he was always really terrified of speaking in front of people because if he got stuck on a word, then he knew he wasn't going to be able to move forward. He'd actually like to stop his remarks in the middle of all of that. And so while I was there and in, uh, at seminary in our senior year, he went into a program up in New York City that specialized with stutters. And they used all of this modern techniques, all of this science. And I went to his graduation from this program and I was actually amazed by it. Uh, you had to give a speech for the graduation. Everybody who was there had to give a speech, which, of course, they didn't want to do. But they got up and they did it, and he gave his speech, and it was flawless. I mean, it was amazing. It was like he never even had a stutter. You would have never known. Now, that was 2007. 3,300 years ago, they had no access to that kind of science. They had no access to that kind of stuff. So what that meant was is that if you had a stutter, you had a stutter. It probably wasn't going anywhere. And so you can imagine how terrified Moses would have been in this situation because if he's going up to Pharaoh, he's got to do this in public. And he doesn't want to do it. And so God says, look, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. I'll be with you. Just go. Go. You're going to be fine. Like a parent pushing their kid out the door on the first day of school, you know, like, oh, you're going to be good. It's going to be great. And then Moses breaks down and he says, he says, look, I don't want to do this. Like, please Can you just find somebody else to go out and do this for me? And God gets angry. And God says, no, you are the one who has to go. You're the one who I need to go out and do this. Look, if you don't want to speak, I'll get your brother Aaron to go out and speak on your behalf. It literally says in the Bible, and I love this. This It's one of my favorite lines. It says, he, which is Aaron, shall serve as a mouth for you, and you, Moses, shall serve as God for him. Now, setting aside the fact that Aaron, this is the first time he kind of appears, literally, this is the first time he appears, no concept of where he comes from, right? So he says that he's Moses' brother, right? Well, Moses was born back in Egypt. He flees away. How does this guy find him? doesn't say. I would think, actually, that he's one of the daughters of Midian, the priests of Midian, probably one of their husbands, and that he considers him a brother. But the fact is, is that they say that it's his brother. We don't know where he comes from. But you set that aside. I find this particular phrase right here. He, go back. Go back. He shall serve as a mouth for you, and you shall serve as God for him. This is a really, really important idea. And I want to take some time to unpack all of this for you. Because I think that what's in this is something that's really, really important for us today. So the first part of this is that Aaron is serving as a mouth for Moses. Now, this concept, it establishes a recurrent theme that we find throughout the rest of the Bible, which is that when a person is unable to speak for themselves, God will assign someone to speak on their behalf. Now, in this particular instance, Moses literally has a physical disability. He cannot speak on his own, and so God assigns somebody to literally speak on his behalf. But then you come to other points in the Bible where you have these groups of people who have no voice. 
And God wants us as Christians to stand up and speak out on their behalf. In fact, Jesus is very, very specific that he expects his disciples, his followers, to stand up and to speak out on behalf of the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, the stranger. That we are to be their advocate. And Moses and Aaron, they are the model for that. They begin that in the Bible. Now, the second part of this that I want to get into is this second half. And I think this is really, really fascinating. This idea of how Moses is going to be God to Aaron. Now, you would think that what he would say, God would say is, I'll be God to Aaron because I'm God to everyone, right? But no, that's not what it says. It says that Moses will represent God to Aaron. And I want to unpack this because this idea is really interesting to me too. So I think the implication behind this is that for many, many people in the world, the only way that they can truly understand and comprehend God is by seeing God in other people. And I can tell you that this is very much true as a pastor. Many people, they look at me as a pastor, and because I have the name Reverend in front of my, like my title, or because I'm wearing a robe and stoles, that I am somehow closer to God as a result. But TC will tell you, I mean, he'll, he'll step right up and tell you, I'm no closer to God than any of the rest of you, right? He'll attest to it. So the fact is, though, is that there are many, many people who look at pastors and priests and they say, you're like Moses. And what can Moses do? Moses can literally speak to God and God will listen to what Moses has to say. That's what people think about pastors. Now, this puts us in a little bit of a precarious type of a situation because when you think about pastors, if you think that we're perfect, we're not. We are human. We are flawed. So just imagine for a moment, if you will, that somebody comes to me and they think that I represent God to them. And I make mistakes all the time and say that I mess up or say that I don't deal with your problem in a way that is truly helpful to you. Then all of a sudden, you're going to look at me and you're going to say, well, Alex, you're God to me. And so therefore, it feels like God is letting you down, right? feels like God has really not been there for you. And that's not true, though. God isn't letting you down. I'm letting you down. <laughs> like That's really what it comes down to. I've let you down. Now, that's the negative side of seeing God in other people, right? The positive side is that when we see God in other people, we can actually have these amazing experiences of God. I can tell you that some of the most amazing experiences of God I've ever had have been seeing them through other people. So let me give you an example of this. So those of you who know me well, and I've spoken about this before, you probably know that I'm an avid, I love to work out. I'm an avid weightlifter. I lift weights all the time since I was 15. And prior to COVID, I would go to the gym every other day for about two hours. Now, this is not to say that I spent the entire two hours, like, lifting weights. I would t do a set, rest, do a set, rest. You know how working out goes, right? Now, when I'm not with a workout partner who I can talk to, when I'm in between sets, what I like to do is people watch. Anybody here go to the gym and people watch? Do you know what I'm talking about? All right, so I people watch. I like to sit there. I love to listen to what people are saying. I just kind of like listen while they, and you learn so much about people by doing that. Well, I'm about 20 years old. I'm at the gym and I finish the set and I get up and I'm looking across the gym. This is a small gym back in my hometown of Fredericksburg. 
and I see that there's this guy across the way. He's like probably in his early 40s, and it's clear that he has an intellectual disability. He's got a caretaker next to him, and she's just trying to get him out of the house just to do something. It's not like he's exercising on this bike. It's more of a slow churn. But what I remember about this guy and why it struck me so much is that this guy was just so happy to be present. He's just happy to be there at the gym. Like, life was good for him. And why it stuck with me is because at that time, it was such a great contrast to what I was feeling in my life because I was struggling. I was lost at that point in time. I had gone to school at Rice University to be a computer engineer. And after my freshman year, it became very clear that I was not going to be a computer engineer. The math and the physics were simply too hard for me. Like, I got through it, but you don't want somebody who gets a C in math to be a computer engineer. It's not going to work out super well for you. So I realized, you know what, it's probably in my best interest to just, you know what, move on and try something else. But I didn't know where I wanted to go. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I remember looking at this guy and thinking to myself, gosh, it must be nice to be in your shoes that you don't have to worry about those things. And I was kind of jealous of this guy. And that's what I was thinking to myself. And I, I decided, you know what, I just, I'm going to have to figure it out. And so I'm working out a little bit later, and we end up crossing paths with each other, this guy. And he looks up at me, and he's probably a little shorter than I am. And he looks up, and he says, you have kind eyes. You're going to help a lot of people. And that was the only time I ever spoke to this guy. The only time he ever said anything to me, we just crossed paths in that point. And it was interesting because at that point in time, I had been contemplating the idea of getting into some kind of helping profession. And I didn't know which one, but I felt like he was speaking to me in that moment, like God was speaking to me in that moment through that man. Because the fact is, at that point in time, uh, when he said that, I thought back to when I was growing up and my pastor had very kind eyes. And that was the first time in my life that I could really envision myself being a pastor as an adult. And so it was like Robert Frost's poem, right? Two roads diverge in a yellow wood and sorry I could not travel both. I'd been going down this one path for a long time. I'd wanted to be a computer engineer for a number of years. And the reason I wanted to be a computer engineer is because I've been programming since the time I was about eight years old. I've been doing programs, and I was good at it. I liked it, and I was pretty good at it. And on top of that, I came of age in the 90s, and if you remember the 90s, computers were just transforming everything. And I thought, you know what? I want to be on the front end of all of this artificial intelligence technology. That's where I want to go. That's where I want to be. And uh, finally, computer engineers make a lot of money. So, you know, it just made a lot of sense. So I was just going to go down that road. But the problem was is that that wasn't the place I was supposed to go. I was being called to another place. And so in the midst of all of this, in the midst of being called to a completely different place, I had to let go of that dream. And it's kind of like Robert Frost in the poem, right? He's standing at this crossroads, and it's a fork in the road, and he has to choose one path over the other. And he's sad. That's the kind of the point of the poem is that he's mourning the fact that he cannot travel both roads. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to go down both, but he can only choose one. And so in that moment, he says, I chose the path less traveled. And at the end, he has that famous line, and that has made all the difference. So the fact is, is that we, in our lives, we have to make choices all the time. 
And very often when we think of Robert Frost's poem, we think of these big choices. We think of, you know, our careers, the kind of choices we make in our careers, like what I was talking about. We think of big choices like, am I going to stay with my significant other? Am I going to move away from home? Am I going to have children? These, these big, weighty issues. And you can certainly apply his poem to that if you want to. But I actually don't think that's what it's about. I actually think Robert Frost's poem is about something else. Because you have to remember, he's walking through the woods, and he comes to a path in the woods, right, that diverges. And he's got to choose one path or the other. This is not a life-altering decision that he's making, right? He's just walking through the woods. And so really, I believe this poem is about the ordinary, everyday decisions we have to make, those small forks in the road. But what's amazing about those small forks in the road is how they often impact these much larger forks that we take in our lives. And I want to tell you a story. That's how I want to end today. I want to end with a story about the difference that this can make. So when I was young, growing up, I had a friend who, his name was Mike. We did everything together. We spent all our time together. We played together all the time. And we went to school together. And so we even rode on the same bus together. We were these little shrimpy kids, very, very tiny. And so we were just the perfect target for bullies. Now, it wasn't a problem for us until we got into middle school. And in middle school, once we got into fifth grade, there was a seventh grader on the bus who clearly should have been in like 11th grade, but he hadn't quite made it through. And so he was in seventh grade, and he just loved to pick on Mike mercilessly all the time. And I was always sitting next to Mike, and I was always get, like, I would be small and just try not to be seen. I'd be invisible so that hopefully he wouldn't see me. And I remember one day Mike said to me, he says, you know, you say you're my friend, but you never stick up for me. You never defend me with this guy. And the fact is, what he said to me, it hurt, but it was true. Every time I came to a fork in the road where I had to make a decision of defending my friend or protecting myself, I always chose to protect myself. And this happened over and over and over again. Now, fast forward 10 years. I'm 21 years old now. And I'm in my hometown in Virginia. I'm going for a run with my friend Elvis. We're running downtown, and it starts to pour rain. And so we end up standing under an awning downtown. And if you can see it on the monitor, you can see it on your phone. That's what it looks like. And so we were under one of these awnings down there just trying to wait the rain out. About five minutes later, a cop rolls up in front of the store. He gets out, goes up to Elvis, who is Hispanic, and he says, I got a call that you're threatening the owner of the store. Now, I can tell you for a fact that didn't happen. We didn't talk to anybody. We were just standing out there waiting for it. We didn't even see a customer come out. But this call was made, and I didn't say anything to the police officer. Didn't say a word to him about this because it was clear he was intent on arresting Elvis. And we go back and forth on this, and eventually we're like, you know what? Like, clearly you want us to leave. We'll just leave, okay? So we eventually convince him to let us go, and we are able to run back to my house. And Elvis, when we get home, he says to me, he goes, why didn't you say to the officer that nothing happened? Why didn't you say anything? And why didn't you defend me? You were there. You know I didn't do anything. When I was younger, I had taken the path so many times of protecting myself over defending my friend 
that that was the only path I knew how to take at that point in time. It was too scary for me to go down the other path because I had never practiced it before. And so when it really mattered, when my friend really needed my help, when I needed to take the road less traveled, I couldn't do it because I didn't know how. That's why those little forks in the road matter so much because they often determine how you're going to be taking those big forks in the road. And this has major implications for our lives because the fact is the right fork in the road, the morally right fork in the road, is often the hard path to take. Let me give you some examples of this in our lives. So as human beings, we are always in positions where we are in relationships with people, and those relationships, they break. We have strain with them. And so when we run into problems, you have two choices. You can either confront the problem and talk about it, or you can ignore it and hope it goes away. And a lot of people choose to ignore the problem. A lot of people choose to not confront it. And so how do we ignore it? We ignore it in a lot of different ways. We can just say, I'm not going to talk about it. You can go home and have a little drink of alcohol. It'll make you feel better about the situation. You can eat. You can watch TV. I watched a lot of people in my life use alcohol as a way to do that. And they would do this. Every time there was a problem, rather than confront it, they would drink. And they did this over and over and over again to the point where when they came to a big fork in the road and they really needed to deal with it, they didn't know how. I'll give you another example of this. Right now, we are living in a world where we are polarized in our thought process. People are on different sides, and whatever side you're on, you think the other person is stupid, you think they don't know anything, you think that they should just be quiet and stop talking, right? And it's very easy for us to go down the path of hating those people, is it not? As opposed to going down the harder path, the right path, which is the path that Jesus tells us to go down, of loving our enemy, right? Loving the people who we disagree with. Now, here's the thing. If every time you come to that fork in the road, you hate the person, you say they're stupid or they're ignorant and they don't know what they're talking about, and you never practice going down the path of loving them, you're not going to be able to do it when it really matters. I'll give you one more example. Right now, we are dealing with the vestiges of racism in this country in a big way right now. All of the negative things that have happened to people of color in this country are starting to come to bear right now. And what I see happening a lot of the time, particularly with white people, is they will say, well, this is really not my problem. I wasn't a slave owner in the 1800s. I wasn't in the South during segregation enforcing Jim Crow laws. I don't have anything to do with this. This is not my problem. Which you can say if you want to. But the fact is, God calls us like Moses, what I was talking about earlier, where you step up and you speak out. And you need to be the voice for the oppressed. And so the right way to go, the hard way to go, is to stand up and to say, racism is wrong, and I'm going to do everything in my power to ensure that people in this country have the exact same opportunities as everyone else. And I'm going to make sure that this is something that doesn't happen in the future because we don't want people to have to struggle and suffer with racism. Is that harder to do? Yes, absolutely it is. But if you practice, if you never practice it and you keep going down that easy road of saying, hey, not my problem, when it really matters, and today it matters, you're not going to be able to go in the other direction. The fact is that if you take the easy road over and over and over again, then it becomes really difficult and sometimes impossible 
to take the right road. And I saw that when it happened to me. When I was younger, I took the road of protecting myself over defending my friend, and it was really hard for me to go down that road less traveled. I couldn't do it. But I can tell you what got me out of that malaise, what allowed me to actually do it, was about 12 years later, seven years ago, I was in a situation where some people were really being confronted with negative things, and I was the one in charge, and I had to stand up, I had to speak out. And it was very much like what you see Moses dealing with. So Moses... God says to him, look, I'll be with you. I'll be there for you. And I didn't want to do it because I'd never gone down the road before, but I stood up and I was like, okay, I'm going to try this. And it made a big difference going down that road. Was it hard for me to do? Yes. Did I want to do it? No. Would I have preferred to go down the easy road of protecting myself and not stand up and speak out? Yes. But I will tell you that very much like the poem, when I chose to go in the other direction, when I actually made a decision to stand up and go down the road less traveled and to help the people who were struggling and suffering, it's like what it says in the poem. It made all the difference. And I look back on that now and I say to myself, I'm so glad I did that because now I have the courage to stand up and to speak out and to say this is wrong and we need to do something about this. And had I not done that, I don't think I would have been able to today. And so... As we end, I want you to listen to this poem one more time. And you won't be able to see it, many of you on the screen. There is a video that goes along with this. But I want you to look at it. And I want you to think to yourself, what are the small forks in the road that I've been taking in my life where I have taken the easy path over the right path? And where is God calling me to try to go down the road less traveled so that I can truly make a difference in people's lives and so that I can actually do what God is calling on Moses and all of us to do, which is that we need to be a voice for the oppressed. We need to stand up and speak out for those who don't have a voice for themselves. Amen.